Part 25, I entitled today's message, Righteous Enough to Judge. And I want to begin with a question or a series of questions to pose out to you. Here we begin. Is God fair? That's that, that's what we have to solve. I've been challenging you with different questions about God throughout this series. And, and it seems that we have a lot easier of a time answering the question, is God good, than is God fair? But I need you to realize one's lumped into the other, right? You can't, you can't be good if you're not fair. So the reason I ask the question is because there's a lot of stuff in the Bible, especially when we step into next week. And next week is uh, the most brutal uh, passage of all of Revelation. So as we step into discussions of wrath and hell and torment and all this stuff, you got to ask the question, is God fair? Because really you're going to start looking at some of this stuff and go, well, that's not fair. Well, just because this person didn't want to do it this way or blah, blah, blah. And you'll begin to start wrestling with issues of whether or not God is fair. You've got to solve that in your mind. You can't just serve a God that's unfair. So somehow, some way, you've got to come to an understanding that he is fair and that you may not understand all the ways how. Like, for example, I don't get the whole understanding of the doctrine of hell. I don't fully get that. That's beyond me. I don't understand concepts of eternal this or eternal that. I've never, never lived in that world. I've always been in a time restraint. I've always thought linear. I've always thought in a, uh, a pattern where we could say before and we can say now and we can say in the future. Well, what happens when you step out of that? I have no idea. And as a matter of fact, out of a couple different doctrines in scripture, I don't even like that one, right? I don't like, I don't like hell, but nobody ever asked me what I liked. Uh, it's something that you need to understand. You need to chew through it. So I'm still learning and grappling, uh, even as a pastor, with these types of concepts. But you must settle in your heart, is God fair? The Bible says that he is. So either it's wrong or it's right. Um, but I believe that when we begin to get things right, our world begins to make sense. When we begin to understand our God, our world makes sense. When we begin to understand our God, we understand ourselves a little bit better. So today's message is primarily going to be about understanding more about God, which is amazing. The fill in the blank in front of you is something I believe firmly to be true, and it applies to those going to heaven, and it applies to those going into the lake of fire. The fill in the blank is this. No one will call God unfair on the day they see what he sees. No one will call God unfair on the day that they see what he sees. I believe it's a matter of perspective. As a matter of fact, the Bible is very clear that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that what? Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee. That means even the people that are told to depart from Him. You understand that? Nobody's going to go, hey, you can't do that. That's not what we agreed on, right? There's no agreement. He's God, you're not. So He's going to set it out. But once you see it, you agree. Uh, remember the famous uh, comment or uh, quote from C.S. Lewis who said the, the most popular word on the first day of heaven is going to be, oh, <laughs> right? It's a perspective thing. Then you get it. 
It's the whole, I don't know what analogy you want to fly out there, but it's a whole tapestry thing on one side. It's a big mess of, uh, you know, uh, what am I trying to say? Threads. There we go. Wow. Okay. I'm tired this morning, so I have no idea what I'm talking about. On one side is a whole mess of threads. You turn around, you go, Oh, what a beautiful picture. That's God's perspective. That's a heavenly perspective. We need to correct our perspective. When we see it, he sees it. He's absolutely fair. 100% all the time. So the goal for this message today is to see the world, see the plans of God as he sees them and as all of heaven see them. So let's recap. Where have we been? Well, there was three series of sevens that were going to be discussed in the book of Revelation. There were seven seals. We've already been through all that. There was a big old scroll and they broke off seven seals. And with every seal, something was revealed. We learned some new information. Well, then there was seven angels who did what? They came out with seven trumpets. They sounded their trumpets. That was much more of a, a warning or an alarm. And there was a call to order. Well, we've already been through all those. The seventh guy that blew his trumpet now is echoing out and encapsulating everything we're studying right now. Next week, we launch and see the final sevens, seven bowls of wrath or plagues that God pours out on the wicked. Now, where we are at here is to say, we got to worship before we get into this vicious stuff. And what I did not know last time I went through the book was how many worship breaks are in Revelation. I, I never even, I don't know how I blew past them, how I didn't even know this, but before every severe movement of God, they stop and have a worship service. And, they, and it's to re-rack us and think, wait a second, what's God like again? Oh, that's right. He is merciful and kind and compassionate and he is right and he is just and he is true and he is almighty. And it stops with saying, what is God like again? Because if you only look what's next, you're going to start missing it. You're going to immediately assume stuff about God when you see him in his rage, when you see him in his wrath. But let's reset. What is God like and that worship service we get to study today. Today is this massive encouragement, a time to know about God. And so I'm glad that you're here. Well, next week we get to see how that seven-year tribulation period wraps up. And it's pretty rough. So why don't we dive into it and learn a little bit about God. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 15, verse 1. It's page 874. Revelation chapter 15, verse 1, page 874. If you've missed any of these uh, lessons, you can obviously download them on podcast online. Uh, Revelation chapter 15, verse 1. We're going to study the whole chapter. Good thing it's tiny, huh? So we're going to go through this chapter. I'm going to read through it. Then we will tear apart uh, the word of God. And in between those two, we're going to pray. So let's... Uh, Let's go ahead and read the word of God. You can follow along. John, the apostle said, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign. Seven angels with the seven last plagues last because with them, God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and standing beside the sea. Those who had been victorious over the beast and his image 
and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and in heaven the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the testimony, was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chest. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you today to sit at your feet and learn. We want to gaze upon your face and learn who you are and as you have revealed, not as man has told us, not as we have been taught through the years, but as you have revealed yourself in Scripture. We want to engage in the raw Word of God that we might be able to know you rightly, to be changed by it. We sit at your feet and learn today. Lord, I want to pray especially for Mark and Rebecca, Lord, as they are ready in a couple of weeks to head out to Romania. That Lord, they have dedicated two years of their life to go love on the kids that we, so care, that we care so desperately about. But I ask that you would anoint them and empower them to do what you wish for them to do. That, Lord, that they would be advancing the kingdom of God, that it would be useful and beneficial, that you would guide them and guard them. And, Lord, as we continue to move as a body, chasing after you, would you show us your desires for all of us to advance your kingdom? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's do this. John says, I saw in heaven. What? Another, remember there's seven of those, so he's seen a whole bunch of signs. He said, another great, meaning important, and marvelous, meaning amazing. I just saw an important and amazing sign. What was it? Well, there were seven angels. What are angels again? We, we always think of them as just uh, super good-looking guys, right? They're slightly androgynous, right? They all got big wings. Okay. Angelos in Greek just means the sent ones or the messengers of God. So really it's okay to use it as a term to even say about another human being of saying you have been an angel to me. In other words, the idea that you were a messenger of God to give me some encouragement or some comfort. So here we have seven of these beings emerge out. They come walking out and seven angels... With the seven last plagues, now next chapter it's going to call them bowls of wrath. This one calls them plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean we're done with the book? Does the book only have 15 chapters? What, 16 chapters? No. No, we're only in 15 chapters. There's 22 chapters in this book. So what do you mean it's completed? It means 
that when this seventh trumpet opens up, launches the seven final plagues, which, by the way, last four chapters long, okay? So we're going to be discussing the impacts and the isn't God great breaks, all those for four chapters, chapters 16, 17, 18, and 19. They're all about the same thing. By the time we finish 19, what God was going to do on earth in terms of wrath will be completed. Now, that does not mean all of his work is done. Do you understand? Even after the end of chapter 19, we still have Satan running about. So obviously God's not done. He still has to shut that guy down, throw him into the lake of fire. So it doesn't mean that the whole book shuts down. It just means that his wrath on earth will be completed. Now he said it a little bit different last time. Would you keep your finger there in 15? Bounce back to chapter 10. Let me show you something. Chapter 10, verse 6. God talked about this issue once before. Revelation 10, 6. And I'm going to kind of scoot through and kind of summarize here, but 6 and 7. It says, Then the angel, scoot down, swore by him who lives forever and ever, scoot down, and said, There will be no more delay. Now, he said that way back in chapter 10. There will be no more delay, but in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. All right, jump back to 15. Here's the thing. God has a plan in place. This is the final chapter to the earth part, is all he's trying to explain to you. So what is this sign? How is this going to work? What do we need to know? Verse 2, John said, And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire. Now, where is John when he sees this stuff? We know that he's in the throne room of heaven. Why? Because we've seen this sea before. You go, where? Well, keep your finger there. Let's dive back. We saw it back in Revelation chapter 4. So bounce back to chapter 4. We've seen this throne room floor it looks like a sea no it's not a sea it says it looks like a sea right this is what john saw when he first got to walk into the throne room of god can you imagine the awe that you would have walking into the throne room of heaven how incredible that would be well this is how john described it he said there before me verse 2 was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it and the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And here's the key. And before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Something happened to the throne room floor between then and now. It used to be clear as crystal. What does that suggest to you? It suggests to me transparent, where you could look right through it. But now something is making a bit more opaque, a bit more muddied. What is it? 
Well, now when we jump back to 15, he says, I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire. Now there's something in the floor. What, what do we do with this? Now, I sat there and read a, a million commentaries. Nobody really knows what it means. They all agree on one thing is that fire represents judgment. And we know we're talking about judgment and wrath. So that clearly is what it's indicating. But why the change in the floor? Let me throw this out to you. This is speculation. So I want you to take it with a grain of salt. But is it possible that the floor room of heaven out before God displays kind of what God is doing at the time? That it almost, you know, it's almost like a mood ring, right? Right? This idea, well, I feel like this, okay? And it kind of changes. And here's what I mean. I mean, before the sea was smooth and tranquil and flat, why is that important? Because mostly in Old Testament writings, a sea meant turmoil. But this was not turmoil. In God's view, from God's perspective, no matter what was going on on the ground, no matter what was going on on earth, from God's perspective, everything was smooth. As a matter of fact, you could see right through it and see what God was doing. But now it's changed. Though it is still smooth, there's something else going on underneath it. And what is that? Judgment. Now, I'm going to suggest one more step beyond that as a possible application. Is it possible that when God begins to do things like judgment, it begins to muddy the waters of what we see that he's doing? I don't think we fully understand judgment. I don't think we fully understand what's going on. And I think in those ways, the fire makes it a little less transparent. We have a hard time seeing what God is doing in the midst of judgment. However, it is still smooth, it is still perfect, it is still right. So then we go back to 15. And standing beside the sea, which by the way, may be a bad translation. The Greek word is epi, which normally means on, by, with, things like that. So why did it translate beside? Well, NIV did it because they're going, well, it's a sea. You don't want to be standing on the sea. Well, hold on, it's not a sea. It's like a sea. But really, it's solid, so it's probably a better read to just go, they're standing on it. Who is standing on it? It says, and standing beside or on the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast. Who's the beast? The Antichrist. And his image, which was what? Remember that statue enforcer that we talked about a couple weeks ago? They were victorious over that. And over the number of his name. What's the number? 666, right? How were they victorious? We've already seen this group before. Chapter 7, 9 through 17. We've already seen this group before. How in the world are they victorious? Because we know who they are. Who are they? John asked them, who are these guys? He said, these are the martyrs that have been killed during this tribulation period. Oh, wow. Real good victory. So y'all got killed. What are you talking about? How's that victory? Let me give you a truth that I think we need to lock into our spirits. Survival isn't winning. You understand? Death is not losing. We need to re-rack. Why? Because sometimes our desire for survival will lead to compromise. 
we need to own and buy into the concept that sometimes death is the ultimate victory over the enemy. It is not failure. It is not, oh, I got to fight back at all counts. I got to survive. No, you don't. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. Survival is not the ultimate. Obedience is the ultimate. So these beat the enemy. They held strong. They didn't cave. They didn't compromise. They stood up for their Lord Jesus. They were killed, yes, but that merely put an exclamation point on their point, right? Then it says... They, standing on the sea, meaning on top of the judgment, the judgment's not for them. They, standing there in victory with the Lamb of God, they held harps given them by God. There's those harp things again. <laughs> those things are driving me crazy, right? Uh, a harp is beautiful, however, I don't, I, I don't want one, personally. I, I think that there are some people that are amazing at it, and, and they, they should keep theirs, Okay. Um, I'm probably going to go ahead and trade mine in when I get there for a drum set. I'm a drummer. I don't know if you guys knew that. All right. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. All right. What does that mean? You go, well, it's pretty obvious, Lance. They sang the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Then why is there one song? Okay. I would suggest to you that it's not two songs. It's one song. Right? Because one song is recorded, which we were about to study. However, what would a Jew immediately think if, the, if you said to them, we're going to sing the song of Moses, where do they go? Because all the Orthodox Jews knew exactly what the song of Moses is. What is that? It comes from one of two locations. Either Exodus 15. Exodus 15 is the story that goes back to when they used to be in bondage to Egypt. Everybody remember that? It's like the most famous Jewish story of all, right? Other than Passover, which is kind of linked together, right? So you now have the Hebrew people, the Israelis, encaptured by the Egyptian empire. They want to get out. This is the whole let my people go thing, right? God drops down ten plagues, shatters the confidence and the nation of Egypt, and then they let them go. Then they what? Change their mind. They then pursue the Israelis through the wilderness. Oh no, here we are. We're all walking around. We don't have anything to defend ourselves with. Oh no, we're stuck at a big, huge body of water, which is what? The Red Sea. They're stuck at the Red Sea. We can't get across. How are we going to get the kids across? How are we going to get the animals across? This isn't going to work for us. Oh, they turn around. Here comes the oncoming enemy. So they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. What was Moses told to do? Be still and know that I'm God. That's really hard. Then he said, I want you to raise your staff. All of a sudden, what? The water's part. You remember this story. Wall of water, one side, other side, walk through on dry land. That's called a miracle, right? Everybody clear on that one? We all think that's a miracle? All right. Then they go through on dry land Bad guys try to pursue them. Wall of water comes crashing down. They die. Okay, that's called a yay moment. Right? Yay, they're all dead. Okay, 
This is the hole. God just rescued us. And they began to celebrate. And they began to what? Praise God and worship God. So Moses goes, man, I've got to write a song about this. So he writes what is known as the Song of Moses. Now, at every Jewish service, after they would say the Shema, there are two prayers that needed to be said. One of them is from this story. As a matter of fact, on Sabbath evenings, the Song of Moses is to be sung. Everybody knew the Song of Moses. And now you could either attach it to that one or the bigger one, which is in Deuteronomy 31 and 32, which is grabs that song and talks about all the other amazing things that God has done for the Israeli people through the wilderness. Okay, that's the song of Moses, but that's not what they sing. They sing the song of Moses and the song of the lamb. The word lamb is perhaps the most, well, clearly the most popular title for Jesus in the book of Revelation. It's used 28 times, right? What is the song of the lamb? It's another gay moment. It's Jesus died for our sins. He is the mighty victor. We win. It's another yay moment. But do you understand that the first yay moment was a prefigure of the second one? The first Passover was going to point to the ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So really, are they two songs or are they one continual song of God saving his people? It's all one song. But they didn't get to sing the lamb part till later. So let's go back and study what exactly this song was. By the way, it has 11 direct quotations from the Old Testament. It has 17 at least references clearly to the Old Testament. So let me ask you a quick question. Do you know your Old Testament? I, n- I know that we're immediately going to dive into, oh, I got to have a devotion for today. Got to go New Testament, right? Do you know your Old Testament? Because the New Testament reflects back on it a lot. You're not going to understand the book of Hebrews at all unless you understand the Old Testament. So we got to know the Old Testament. Do we know that because there's a lot of glory to God that you will see in the Old Testament? There's a lot of songs that you can sing. There's a lot of stories that will give you courage and hope. You will see mercy. You will see grace. You will see all types of extraordinary acts of God. Do not leave the Old Testament closed. Open it up because it's the same God. And he's been doing the same thing all throughout history. So now we enter into this New Testament, Old Testament combo where you begin to see God's movement throughout history and into the future. This is the song of Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. That is Psalm 139, 14, right? Great and marvelous are your deeds. Does God do great things? Yeah, are you singing about it in your heart? Do you even reflect on it? Do you know what God's doing? Or are you just guessing? Have you ever seen something miraculous occur? Have you ever been there or witnessed the transformation of a life? Have you ever had the opportunity to see someone get saved and transfer from darkness to light? Have you personally ever seen God do something marvelous and amazing? 
Now, add to all that knowledge what God is doing around the world. Do you know what God's doing around the world? Do you have your eyes open? Are you listening? Do you know anything going on? For example, my mom, she supports a ministry called Voice of the Martyrs. I don't know, maybe you have heard about that. She gets constant updates about what God is doing around the world in all these other countries of people that are dying for Christ and the amazing miracles that God is doing all over the world. I get their material too, but I end up going delete, 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 because I don't have time to even read all the stuff that God is doing all over the world. But when we begin to get an idea of what God is doing, I remember one time I heard a, a pastor by the name of Leith Anderson speak. He said, we, we look at the apostles and we say, after Pentecost, these guys were on fire. Do you remember that? Because before that, they were what? In a door, in a room with a door locked for fear of the Jews. You remember? That's kind of how the story starts. In other words, hey, I'm really into Jesus, but I'm kind of freaked out here. After Pentecost, they do what? They walked out of the doors absolutely bold, and they began to devastate the world for the kingdom of God. What was the difference? Pentecost. He said, examining the world scene today, do you realize that we are having, because what did they see? They saw 3,000 people saved in one day. He said, do you realize that on a global scale, we have a Pentecost every minute? Let that one soak in. Why are we not walking out bold? But Pentecost shocked them. Pentecost made them amazed. We just kind of shrug our shoulders. We get a Pentecost every minute of every day on a global scale. Great and marvelous are your deeds, O oh God. You're doing extraordinary things, Lord God Almighty. Lord God Almighty is the what? The name that God gave to Abraham to explain who he was in Genesis 17. He said, I'm the Almighty. So Abraham would lock that down and go, yes, you are. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the Ages. That's quotes from Daniel 4.37, Hosea 14.9, Jeremiah 10.7. Just and true are your ways. You know what that means? It means God's fair. Just, justice. True, right. God is right every time. In your life and in the lives around you. You must know that. Just and true are your ways. King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? That too is Jeremiah 10.7. But something's interesting. That phrase was used of the Antichrist. Do you remember? That's why it was so offensive. They said to the Antichrist, man, you're big. You crush everybody. Who's not going to fear you? Who's not going to bring glory to your name for all the stuff you did? And God said, wait a second. Did you just use my line? That's my line. No, you use that about me. No, he's just a created being. I will squash him. I'm powerful. I'm the almighty, he says. And they began to sing that back to him. Wait a second. We have it right. Who would not fear you? Who would not bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. What's holy mean? Other. You're the only one that's other. Everything that we know, supernatural and natural is created. You're the only one that's other. You're the one to be praised. Why? Because you're not even from here. You're not even just heavenly. 
God, you are beyond all that is created. You are so far beyond what we could imagine. And that is why we praise you. Do you ever unpack any of the worship songs that we sing or that you sing in the car? Do you ever just listen to worship music in your car and they sing a word and you can't even listen to the rest of the song because you're still chewing on what you just heard? Like he'll say something. I was doing that yesterday. I was trying to really get into this groove with the Lord and I put on some worship music and I don't do that very often. And I put on some worship music just to try to connect with the Lord. But every time Chris Tomlin would say the, say a line, I'd sit there and just start dwelling on it. And I was like, that's true for me. He just quoted scripture. That's true for me right now. And I would have peace from that line. So my point in saying all this is, are you taking the time to worship your God? Do you even know him? Do you even know what to say? If I said, tell me what God is like, do you have an answer? Can you describe him? Do you know him personally? Last night, I did a Q&A session with the congregation after the service. Two and a half hours, right? It was a long one. I'm exhausted today, by the way. Two and a half hours. And I kept getting questions fired at me. What does God think about this? What does God think about that? What does God think about this? I'm put on the spot, right? I better know what my God is thinking. How do I know that? By what he has revealed. So how must I respond to the word of the Lord? This is what he thinks. This is what he said. Do you know your God? Because he's revealing himself all over the place. Do you remember when Moses was told by God, I want you to go up to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Moses had a quick question. What's your name again? Remember, who are you? What am I supposed to say? Do you remember the time when God passed by Moses on Mount Sinai and revealed who he was? I am gracious and compassionate. I extend love to thousands. Do you remember all this? I forgive. I hold people accountable, yes. But don't you understand my nature? I am an overwhelmingly loving God. I'm personal. He revealed all that. Do you understand how much we allow other people to tell us what God is like? You're letting pastors and teachers and CDs and TV and everything else to tell you what God is like. Do you understand they're all biased? I'm biased. Every week you come in here, I'm telling you what God's like. What, you're going to buy all that? I'm giving you a biased opinion. It's how I see God. Everybody seems to bend God towards their personality. Have you noticed that? It's what you need at the time. Some people are black and white folks to where they're just absolutely sure about this. So every time they talk about God, he's very solid and just and neither does this or he does this. He loves, um, he loves what is good and he hates sin. And that's all they talk about. They talk about the harsh side of God. Then you get the ones who are super people oriented and God is a, you know, he's your best friend and he's the nicest guy and he'll take time with you. Everybody's giving you a biased view. What point are you going to stop, go back to the word of God and go, what are you like? And let him tell you directly. Because what if you're worshiping a God that's a bit off center? What if you're worshiping the God only of Max Lucado? 
Is Max Lucado good? He's brilliant. He's wonderful. He loves the Lord. But that's not the point. The point is, God has revealed himself in his word. There's a couple times, not tons, but there's a couple times where he just flat out goes, this is what I'm like. I just need you to know that. Chew on that. Soak in that. React off that. He's talking to us. It moves on. All nations will come and worship before you. That's Psalm 86, 9. All nations will come and worship before you. I said it earlier. What do we know it more commonly as? Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We got that one nailed down. Every nation. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Judges 5.11 and four others. Okay, so what do we take from this verse? When they worship God, how much was it about them? It's interesting. All the phrases and pronouns were talking about who he was. This was a praise time. And there's times in our lives when we need to praise. We need to take time and go, God, you are blowing my mind on what you're doing in this world. You're amazing me as to what you do with my family and my children and my parents. Are we doing that? Do we know him well enough to even do that? It moves on. John said, after this, I looked and I, I looked and in heaven, the temple. Now the phrase for temple doesn't mean the whole thing. It means the holy of holies. I looked and in heaven, the holy of holies or the temple. Remember, the earthly temple is taken over by the beast at this time. The Antichrist is running roughshod. But in heaven, everything's completely fine. The temple that is the tabernacle of the testimony. Pause. What? You all know what a tabernacle is? Tabernacle, movable church building. Yeah? Tabernacle, going through the desert, can't bring big building, must take tent. That's it. Very simple. So we grab it and they had a little tent one that was made up and they would close it down when they had to move and then they would march over here, set up shop, put little Ark of the Covenant in the inner side. All right, great. We set up shop and God was present with them. Well, later, once they had land, they built a more permanent one, which Solomon built the temple. Okay, those are very significant. Why is it called the tent of testimony? Because what's inside the Ark of the Covenant? You remember There's a bunch of stuff. The main one, the Ten Commandments. That is the testimony of God's will concerning man. So it was the tent that is the witness of what God wants. That's really what the point is. Now, it says that part, the inner sanctum, the holy of holies was opened. This is the second time it was opened. It was opened in 1119 before. Out of the temple, out of that inner place, came the seven angels with the seven plagues. Real quick possible application. I was reading through a commentary and they made this point and I went, wow, that's powerful. Where are they walking out from? Not just the presence of God, where obviously they're avenging messengers of God. That's pretty clear. But they're walking out of the place where the law is. And they walk out to pour out wrath. What would that suggest? Is it possible that the wrath of God is the natural outpouring of violating his law? Meaning, you can't say no to me without consequence. Don't you get that? All this wrath, all this bad stuff, I don't want it that way. It is my will that none shall perish, but all have eternal life. I'm not interested in burning up anybody. 
But my nature is such that I am all that is holy and true. Anything that violates against me will be destroyed. Don't you get that? The lake of fire was designed not for people, but for what? The devil and his angels. God's wrath is a natural outpouring of violating his will and rebelling against him. And here come the angels walking out from the law to go pour out his wrath. It says this. They were dressed in clean shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Just in case you know from a cultural perspective, you might need to know that is not only priestly dress, but that's royal dress. Kings and priests. You ever heard those phrases used before? Yeah. That's saying they're doing it on God's behalf in a royal manner, but also they are doing it on behalf of God in a priestly manner. Then one of the four living creatures, stop, who? You've been with us during this series? Do you guys remember who the four living creatures are? They're the freaky, weird, winged creatures that all have different faces. Lion, ox, man, eagle, you remember? What are they going to do? They're the ones that gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls. Why are they doing it? Well, I don't know. We either have to guess or just say, I don't know. So here's a guess. Is it possible that lion, oxen, eagle, and man represent all of creation? Do you now have creation handing over and saying, bring down the wrath? We're ready. We deserve it. Here is everything handed over to you, Lord. You are king over all creation. Bring it. We now have one of the four living creatures hand over that right, hand over that authority that God clearly already has, but they hand it over and say, it's go time. Bring it down. It says, he gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls. These are saucers. I want you to think wide, shallow, golden saucers. What are they used for? Priests would use them for primarily three things in at least the biblical reference. They would use them for wine. Everybody remember the uh, drink offering. They would pour that out. You'd put wine into the saucer and they would pour it out on the altar. That's what priests would do. Or blood would be poured out of that saucer, right? They could either do it to flick people, right? When they would do that kind of thing, the anointing, or they would pour out the blood. Then in Revelation, we saw that is also a shallow bowl that has incense burning in it, which represented the prayers of the saints. So now he hands each one of them one bowl, a shallow bowl. But what is in that bowl? Is it blood? Is it wine? Is it incense? What is it? It says right here. He gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with what? The wrath of God. What's that look like? I don't know. That's got to be nasty looking, right? The wrath of God. Obviously, this is all symbolic, right? It's not like they literally had a bowl of wrath, right? You'd put board milk on it. It's not, that's not it. Anyone up for a bowl of wrath? That'd be great. Filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 through 12, it tells you, God will set things right when he comes with his holy angels riding down in judgment. This is the scene we're about to engage in. And the temple, John said, 
was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Pause. Have we ever seen that before? Twice. Why? First time was when they finally set up their tent building, the tabernacle, when they dedicated it to God. God said, everybody back up for a second. I'm coming in. Comes down in a cloud. Fills the place with his presence so that Moses, the Bible says, could not enter because it was so full of God's presence. So that's the first time. When they made the, te- the permanent temple that Solomon built and they dedicated it, what happened? Exact same thing. God came down in a cloud, filled it completely, and the priests could not go in because God had filled it so entirely. Now he does it again. Here comes the smoke. You go, well, is it a smoke or is it a cloud? Depends on what you're talking about because really they're kind of the same thing. You got a cloud if God is guiding, you got smoke if He's bringing in judgment. That's the difference. It's now filled the whole temple and nobody could go in. Let me bring a last possible application to you on this. Is it possible that this signifies something? For example, what do priests do? What's their job? Their job is to mediate between who? God and man. When you go to temple, many times it's the idea of going to the priest for him to intercede on your behalf. But now you can't get in. There's no more intercession. There's no more praying, God, do something different. God goes, I've just filled it. You're not in. We're not interceding anymore. Do you get that? It's broken off. We're done. My judgment will come and nothing's going to change it. Don't even bother trying to say, God, maybe we don't need to have the wrath. Stop. I filled it. Don't even come in here. It's judgment time. I've warned you and warned you and warned you. The Bible says God will not strive with man forever. What happens when that door shuts and God goes, here I come. I have told you what I was going to do. Do not play this game that I did not warn you. Do not play this game that I did not reveal myself to you. I have been very open and clear with you. Now here I come. And when I come, let's just shut the door. Because I'm coming out to you. All right. So what do we do with all this? All right. I got a couple thoughts for you. Knowing that God is good and fair, we would do well to align our thoughts with his, our priorities with his. Y'all, we need to see things as God sees them. Otherwise, we get really off track. We need to stop and have re-rack services. Stop, have worship services and go, wait a second, God is good. I'm sitting here reading all this stuff and it always seems like bad and I'm looking around the world and everything seems tore up. We need to remember God is good. That God is compassionate. That God is merciful. And the more we realign and know that He is right and true, we get on board. And then our world makes sense. Number two, the more we know about Him, the more His attributes are not to be feared, but to be praised and loved. When you know the character of someone, then what they do makes sense. For example, y'all have seen me 
talk to you. You've probably seen me interact. Maybe I've interacted with you directly. You know a bit of my character. So if you saw me come down on somebody in saying, this cannot happen anymore, you would interpret that a little bit different than somebody you didn't know, right? When you know your God, even what he does begins to make sense. Finally, this. Do you know your God? Someone walks up and asks you a question. What's God like? What are you going to say? You know him? Can you answer for him? You may not know all the details. You may not be able to quote any of the scriptures. But do you know? Knowing God is of utmost importance. When we worship, we reveal what we know about God. Or sometimes, if Jeremy, as he selects the songs, we're actually reading it through and reacting off what we're hearing and going, oh, that's right. Oh, that's right. That's true. Oh, I get it. But the more you know about God, the more you worship in your heart. Do you know your God? That's the challenge. Listen, through all of this, please take a moment before we emerge into next week and think about how wonderful our God is that we serve. Sometimes we worship Him. I mean, we serve Him out of fear and merely obedience. This week, I, my challenge to you is to worship Him just because you love Him. Just because He's been so good to you. Just because He's been so good all over the world. Begin to love God because He has loved you. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You for today. I pray that you would continue to open up heaven and show us who you are. I know, Lord, that I don't know everything about you, but the parts that I know, I absolutely love. I've seen you take care of me. I have seen you make my pain and sorrow into something magnificent. I have watched you move through me. And Father, on behalf of this congregation, we want to respond back to the great things you have done by saying not only thank you, but wow, you are amazing. May you be praised not only when we speak, but just when we think that our hearts would echo out a new worship song today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.